Amen. Thanks, Barry. Uh, my name's Jonathan, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. We're in a series on the book of Matthew. If you got a worship folder, there should be an insert inside of it. On one side is a passage, on the other side is an outline. So I'd invite you, if you've got that, to take that out. Uh, the passage is there. There's pew Bibles. Uh, you might have brought a Bible from home, and it'll also be on the screen behind me. So we have you covered from every angle to be able to read uh, this morning. We're going to read from uh, Matthew 11, and we're reading the first 19 verses together, okay? So listen as I read, follow along, Matthew 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is God's word for us this morning. Uh, as I already mentioned, we're in a series on the book of Matthew. We spent the last few weeks in chapter 10, and so, obviously, we're in chapter 11 now. We are moving forward. Those of you who have been here for a while, uh, we started way back in chapter 1. We are eventually going to work our way all the way through the, the passage. And I know, if you're like me, the last couple of weeks, uh, they've been hard to hear some of the things Jesus has talked about with respect to discipleship. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at what we're calling a case study in discipleship. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptizer. Excuse me. Uh, he wasn't a Baptist. Let's be clear about that. Uh, I want to remind you a couple of things. Drew has been reminding us of the past few weeks, and he's, he said this pretty much every week. And last week, you know, I knew I was preaching this week, and so... I figure, man, I ought to write that down. That's good. So let me just be able to repeat it. And it's this. Jesus has a mission, and he's been given all authority. 
And if that's true, and we believe it is, then to follow him is to take up his mission, to take up our cross, his cross, to take up his authority. Following him means we will be identified with him, but it also means we'll be identified with his suffering. His suffering, his life, his identity becomes ours. His mission of love becomes ours. And so what we've got this morning is a transition, really. If you look at verse 1, Matthew's transitioning. He's been recounting Jesus' teaching for the last chapter, and now he moves on to some narrative once again, to tell some story. And his intention is really to illustrate some of what Jesus has been teaching to his disciples. It's almost as if Matthew is saying, remember what Jesus talked about in the previous chapter? Well, here it is. And we're going to get to that. John's imprisonment is a graphic picture of what happens to those who align themselves to Jesus. And this wasn't just anyone. This is the the amazing thing. This was the promised forerunner. This was the, the messenger for the Messiah. So if this could happen to him, then what should we expect? And it would almost be helpful, don't worry, I'm not going to do it, but it would be helpful to read chapter 10 all the way through and then immediately go into chapter 11. Because so much of chapter 10 is applicable to John's situation and many of ours as well. And so I hope that the case study this morning, or or illustration we'll call it, is going to challenge us once again in, in our notions of discipleship, of what it's like to follow Jesus, of what it's like to take on his authority. Uh, and we, we are working on a banner uh, that Drew mentioned, uh, oh, I don't know, a month or six weeks ago. We're going to put it out front. We are committed to teaching everything Jesus said and go do it. Just underneath the sign. Huh? We're not really working on that. That was a joke. Uh, not the banner. Sorry. We are working on the other thing. We're not working on the banner. And those of you who, who don't know me very well, sometimes I tell jokes and I don't smile, so it's hard to it's hard to get used to it. I'm working on that. Pray for the Spirit to move in that direction for me. Um, basically, what you'll see with the outline that we've got here, I'm really going to kind of give you two pictures of where you might be. Some of you might be in point one, full of doubt, uh, unmet expectations, kind of like John. Or some of you may be uh, down in verses 16 to 20 uh, and, and find yourself very apathetic or indifferent or just unmoved, unimpressed by the work of Jesus and the call of discipleship. So wherever you are, uh, listen for how God might be speaking to you and what we can learn. So first, doubt and expectation. Why does John send his disciples with a question of doubt? Okay, what's this reveal about John? Uh, and us. Well, remember who, it, who, who, who this is. John is the guy who preached hellfire and brimstone to Israel. Right? Jesus says, there's no one greater among those born of women. Now, that's a pretty high compliment. He promised, John did, one who would come to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Matthew chapter 3, 11 and 12. One whose winnowing fork was in his hand and who was going to clear away the chaff from the threshing floor. In other words, John was predicting judgment with justice and righteousness when the Messiah came. This was the guy who leaped in his mother's womb when Mary, carrying Jesus in her womb, came to see her. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. This is not just any Tom, Dick, or Harry. I mean, this is John. So, there's not any question... 
or shouldn't be at least, to where his allegiance stood. He rejoiced that Jesus was finally here. In the Gospel of John, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, he was excited. He was going to come and make all things right. All the prophetic hopes would be fulfilled in this man. So, that's John's attitude. And in chapter 11, he's in prison. Well, what was he doing in prison? Well, in chapter 14, which we'll get to, well, I don't know when, but we'll get to it, tells us why. Herod had thrown him in prison because John told him he couldn't take his sister-in-law to bed. That's what he says in chapter 14. That's, that's what happened. John told the king he was doing wrong, and the king didn't agree. So he stuck him in prison. And we can't help but think John, who's in prison, is starting to doubt that this Jesus is the one. Maybe he's starting to question whether this Jesus, with all his healing and good news and, you know, crowd attraction, wasn't the one who'd come to judge and bring down the wrath of God after all. So he takes his disciples... Uh, to Jesus with this message, are you the one? Or should we wait for another? John's hearing lots of blessing and restoration, but little judgment. And his expectations of Jesus weren't coming to pass. In fact, he was in prison. If this guy is who he says he is, if he's who I said he would be, why am I in prison? So he's got confusion, but he's also got expectation that's clearly unmet here. His expectations of what life would be like after Jesus arrived on the scene and started bringing the kingdom were not coming to pass. His expectations in reality were not matching up. And so the result of that was doubt. Anybody, anybody here this morning and you're, you're there with John? You can identify? You, you, you're feeling that today? Many of us read this passage in We do identify with John. Our expectations of Jesus and the life he's promised. He said, I've come to bring life to the full. And you're looking around and you're thinking, that ain't the reality of my life. We look at our circumstances, very similar to John. And we think, where is Jesus? Are you the one? Or maybe we should look for another. Maybe it's a boring job. A hyperactive child. Been there. Actually am there. A car that keeps breaking down, a spouse with cancer, or simply the daily grind of life that magnifies our circumstances and makes us wonder, uh, I'm not sure how Jesus could be here and put up with this. Maybe he's not who he says he is. I don't think a God like that could allow something like this. Now, what's wrong with that statement? The first three words, I don't think. The problem with that is you and I don't have a right to evaluate him. He's the evaluator of you and I. And our our expectations of God become demands. This is the problem. Have you ever said anything like this? I've been obedient and good, God. Therefore, you owe me dot, dot, dot. Or have you ever said, if you cared, God, you would dot, dot, dot. Or this, this is... One I've used a number of times. If you'll make this better, I promise. I mean, you know, can you please calm my son down? I promise I'll raise him to be a godly warrior. Just make him calm. Please. And then people that know me when I was that little tell me, oh, you have no idea. 
The apple didn't far, fall too far from the tree. What happens? We don't get our way. We will then respond in one of two ways. We'll walk away. Or we'll just pout. Speaking of children, we'll just pout. Because in the end, we are convinced we know better than God. Our evaluation and our plan for our life is way better than His. So we begin to make expectations, and those expectations become demands. And Jesus has a clarification for us. If you're here, and you're struggling with doubt, or maybe with unmet expectations, listen to the way Jesus responds to John's question. He doesn't condemn his doubts. He reassures him by pointing to his work. And it works the same with you and I. When we begin to doubt or expect God to bend his knee to our will, rather than the other way around, the Holy Spirit moves us away from doubt toward faith by pointing us to the person and work of Jesus. Jesus is saying, verses 2 to 6, really, Look, John, the kingdom has arrived. The promises of the prophets are coming to pass. I'm the servant of the Lord, endowed with the Spirit. The gospel is being preached and demonstrated as the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, lepers are cleansed. And then Jesus says something kind of startling. Almost to reassure John that he is coming to judge. And this is reminiscent of chapter 10. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Implying what? That Jesus causes offense. Remember last week, he said, I came to bring a sword. I came to demand allegiance. I came to divide families. The Greek word used is the word from which we get our word scandal from. Jesus says, I'm scandalous. Those who aren't scandalized by me or offended by me, take offense from me, are blessed. And so based on the last few weeks, again, shouldn't be surprising coming out of Jesus' mouth. If you, if you haven't been here the last few weeks and you're guest with us for the first time today, go back, listen to the last few weeks so you can hear the, the momentum that Jesus is building in his call to discipleship. So maybe you're here. And you find yourself in John's shoes, doubting or feeling like your expectations have been unmet. The expectations that you've put in place, demands of God. Or maybe it's just doubt. Is he really who he says he is? But others may come this morning and you're going to have more in common with the second problem that John, or excuse me, Jesus describes in 16 to 20, verses 16 to 20. And we're going to call it the apathy of unbelief. What's the real issue? What's Jesus trying to highlight in these verses? How big of a problem is this for our generation? Let me ask you this. Do you know anyone who's never satisfied, never content? Maybe I need a mirror. Okay? But just think about that. You know anybody who's like that? No matter what happens, they never seem to respond. There's just an overarching sense of indifference. Given the language that Jesus uses in these verses, 16 to 20, most scholars agree he's addressing the religious of his day. So what's their problem? Well, one word, unbelief. What's driving their unbelief? Well, I think it's indifference, but not just indifference, because unbelief doesn't mean no belief. Right? Let's get that. Let's be clear. Unbelief doesn't mean no belief. It just means you don't believe in what Jesus says and does. And I want to make sense of some of this metaphor Jesus uses to compare this generation. 
Because you, you get in there and, you, and you're reading through the passage and you get to that and it's kind of like, okay, that, that, that doesn't really, really make much sense. He says, it's like children going out into the marketplaces or the public square and calling to their playmates. They say, we played the flute, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. What in the world is he talking about? Well, there's some background here in terms of uh, the Palestinian, back, uh, Palestinian audience Jesus was speaking to. Uh, and it can help us kind of get underneath what's going on. In most Palestinian villages in Jesus' day, there's only two events where music would have been involved. And where you would, you would come together and celebrate or have some sort of gathering. And that was a wedding and a funeral. That's it. Okay? And it was popular, it was a popular game among children to sit around and pretend they were having a wedding or a funeral. Okay, this is kind of like I used to pretend when I was a priest and I'd serve communion to my stuffed animals. Okay? It's kind of similar to that. You know? We're celebrating something and you're just going to pretend. Yes, I used to do that. I'm not kidding. It's not a joke. I also wore robes and stuff. And I, I need a robe. There's a robe. Anyway. Okay? So, now that I've confessed to that... Uh, Jesus is comparing, very intentionally, he's comparing that generation and us, by implication, to children who pout when the game played isn't the one they want. Right? They don't respond to the wedding songs on the flute, but they don't respond to the funeral dirges either. Why? That's the issue. Why? Because it's not their song. They don't participate because they aren't in control. So, they're, you know, the picture is these kids are playing together, and hey, let's have a wedding. Okay, you play the flute, we'll be the bride and groom, and we're going to walk up, and yada yada, and you've got a, a few over here in the corner that are just like, nope, I'm not doing that. That's stupid. Or, okay, well, let's pretend we're going to have a funeral. Maybe you're in a funeral mood today, all right? And so let's pretend we're going to mourn and let's all wail and beat our breasts in the whole nine yards. I don't want to do that either. What's the problem? They aren't content to play by someone else's rules because they want to make the rules. Now, how's this just like you and I? Okay, well, <clears throat> more confession time. Uh, I had a conversation this past week with my daughter, Ellie, who's not here today. Uh, and Jamie's not in here, so I can just... All out, okay? All out. We are taping this. Yes, it's true. On record. Well, I had a conversation with Ellie because uh, it was the end of the day, and uh, she she's, has a problem. Of, I don't know any of you who are parents of about nine, ten-year-olds, or maybe teenagers now, and remember the nine, ten-year-old phase? Um, they, they have a tendency to talk back sometimes. Okay, all the time. Uh, and Jamie had just kind of got to the end of her rope because she spends way more time with the kids every day than I do because she happens to work where they go to school, and so they ride with her there, and then she's got to deal with them all day, and then she's got to deal with them in the car on the way home. And, you know, by the end of the day, it's like, you need to deal with them. Can you please go deal with them? And I think Jamie made some sort of statement like, um, you need to have a conversation with her about her talking back because clearly the one I have with her is not working. It was very, that was very much the way it went down. So this was the end of the day, and we had just had enough. 
Ellie, go to bed. Eat your dinner, go to bed. Uh, and so I sit down in her uh, next, next to her uh, bed, and I say, uh, why, why do you talk back so much? What, 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 what happens that makes you want to talk back? Um, well, it, it's just unfair. I, I don't want to take a shower right now. What do you want to do? I, I want to do, you know, fill in the blank. I don't know what it is. But, but it was profound to me in that moment because her perception of the, the demands on her time are unfair. Well, Ellie, why is it unfair? I, I don't know. Yes, you do. Why is it unfair? Because it's not what I want to do. Exactly. You're not making the rules. I'm making the rules. When you disobey me, and then I had to play the God card, when you disobey me, you're disobeying God. Really? Oh, yes. You know, any authority in your life is a picture of God's authority. And it was, it was really powerful for me because it, it showed me that she's just like. And what I had to do to her was say, Ellie, God tells me to do things. I pout and say, that's unfair. Or you know what, I don't, I don't feel like doing that right now. I don't jump up and down or, or whine or cry. I mean, she just completely loses it. Anybody, anybody there had this happen? I mean, she just completely loses it. Things are going her way, man. She's the best kid, easiest kid. She'll go to Starbucks and sit and read for three hours. I mean, love that child. <laughs> Ethan would never do that, right? But the minute I say, okay, it's time to go, Ellie, or we've got to run to Publix after we've just had our frozen lemonade, and after you got to go over to somebody's house and spend the night, and after you go to, got to go to the Kennedy Space Center, and after you got to go out for lunch today, and after you got to do this and that, I don't want to do that, Daddy. Why? Because she's not making the rules. And you and I do the same thing. Because she wants the final authority to be her, and we do too. We start with the assumption we really are competent to make our own decisions and assess the truth. The children in Jesus' illustration are not content with the music Because it's not theirs. And the irony is, unbelief stems from the belief that we know best. Isn't that ironic? Jesus goes on to cite evidence to the truth of his illustration by recounting how people have responded to John and himself. John comes living a life of austerity and preaching repentance. He's playing a dirge. And the people say, he's crazy. He's probably got a demon. They didn't want to hear about sin and repentance. Jesus comes eating and drinking, preaching the kingdom, healing, calling people to faith, the gospel of grace, and the people say, he hangs out with sinners and crooks. What a fool. They wanted to see people get what they deserved, not grace. So you see, the indifference I mentioned above, the apathy that unbelief creates, out of that comes a smug arrogance. No matter what tune is being played, I sit in the corner and I complain because it's not the right tune. So I critique and I mock and I'm cynical and I cry, unfair. And I happen to know this is true because I do it. I'm guilty of it. Every day. I'm waiting for Drew to give me an amen, but he's not. Not only that. Not only that. But neither song affects me, and the whole game leaves me really unimpressed. And so if you're here, you're not a Christian, maybe you're new to Christianity, let me say the gospel is both a dirge and a dance. 
The dirge is that we're sinners, we're corrupt, we're wicked, we're capable of all sorts of evil. Jeremiah says the heart's deceitfully wicked above all things. We're enslaved to selfish desires, but it's also dance. We're loved and we're accepted based on the work of Jesus. Our salvation is not based on anything we have done, but on Jesus' record. And to accept both of these, you have to give up control. Both of these tunes assume that you and I are broken and we need to be fixed. Only you're incapable of fixing yourself. Trying harder, sitting off to the side, indifferent. Neither is going to bring you what you were made for. They only make the problem worse. So if you find yourself unaffected by Jesus, unimpressed, the question is why? And I think the answer is pride. Your pride has blinded you to your unbelief. Here's the good news, though. Whether you find yourself doubting God, disappointed at Him for not living up to your expectations, or you might find yourself unaffected by the message of the gospel. The good news is in the middle of the passage, Jesus does something very profound. He defends John. Verse 7 tells us after Jesus' disciples, excuse me, John's disciples hear Jesus answer the question of John, they go away, but then Jesus turns to the crowds. Uh, Look at verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. He turns to the crowds as if he knows what they must be thinking, and he steps up to publicly defend and identify himself with John. He scandalizes himself for the sake of John. Now, Jesus' defense is two things. It's not uh, releasing John from prison. Do you, you notice that? He comes to John's defense, but he doesn't go and get him out of prison. In fact, chapter 14 recounts John's death. The forerunner of the Messiah. The promised one who would come to pave the way for the, for the, for the day of the Lord. How does he go? Does anybody know? He gets his head chopped off. Not exactly the most glamorous way to go. Right? It's not like he gets to stand out in the middle of the the courtyard or the public square saying, Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. No, they just walk in one day and chop his head off. It's incredible. And Jesus' answer to John's disciples almost hints at this, because even though he mentions such signs of the kingdom as the blind seeing, the lame walking, the deaf hearing, we read a little bit in our call to worship from Isaiah 35, the poor hearing the gospel, the dead raised, he leaves out something. In Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah says, captives will be set free. He doesn't mention that. I think he's intentional. Matthew 10, 39, whoever loses his life will find it. Or Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, John, I'm doing the work of the Messiah. I'm proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. But it's not fully here yet. The prophecies of Isaiah are being fulfilled, but there's still fulfillment yet to come. So what's amazing and beautiful about what Jesus does is he publicly identifies with John. Remember, John was probably thought of by Palestinian society at that time as a nut job, a freak, a wacko. Right? He had, he had, he had written or he had been written off by society. And so Jesus stands up publicly and says, this is my man. He's a friend of nutjobs. And yet while he defends John, he doesn't get him released. So why does he go to all the trouble of defending him? Because he shows himself willing to be counted with John, with the one in prison. 
Go back to verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, the one who isn't scandalized by me. The good news for us is that Jesus Christ publicly stood up and defended you and I if our faith is in him and his work. So the question is, are you scandalized by Jesus? Are you offended by him? His defense of John is costly as well. He, he says to the crowds in verse 12, the kingdom of God suffers violence and the violent seize it. And many scholars agree this is a reference to the opposition Jesus has faced as well as the opposition he will face. But verse 12 also has a prophetic side to it. And as we move through the next few chapters of Matthew, we'll see opposition to Jesus and his kingdom is increasing. Probably most graphically uh, in chapter 12, verse 14, after Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, Matthew says, the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. That level of hatred is, is new. And Jesus knows the tide of hatred is rising. And his public defense of John makes it worse. But ultimately, ultimately, he will suffer the most intense violence ever. He will face the violent, rat, white, hot wrath of his father against sin. And it will kill Jesus. It will plunge the earth into three hours of darkness And it will scatter his disciples cowering in fear. But it doesn't end there. Jesus quotes Malachi 3, verse 1 in our passage. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way for me. Jesus tailors it to himself. As if if the father is sending a messenger to prepare the way for the son. But the purpose is clear. As he quotes Malachi 3, 1. He's saying, this is John who, who... Of whom it is written, I'm going to send my messenger to prepare the way for you. You is Yahweh. Jesus is claiming to be God incarnate. In fact, in verse 14, he calls John Elijah who is to come. And everyone listening knew what he meant. The prophets had promised a forerunner who would herald the Messiah King's coming. Jesus says, I'm the one. I'm him. So while the kingdom suffers violence, you can rest assured, I will be victorious. I will win. You see, the gospel is both dirge and dance. The gospel says God's kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but a day is coming when it will be fully revealed. So whether you're here and you're doubting God's goodness or his wisdom, or maybe you're disappointed that he hasn't lived up to your expectations, maybe you're here and you're simply unaffected by the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's, he's unimpressive to you. Wherever you find yourself, listen. Hear this if you hear nothing else. The only way to true, real, lasting faith is to see yourself in John's situation. We're all in prison. I'm, the, I'm a glutton. I'm the drunk. I'm the greedy tax collector. I'm the sinner. The worst sinner I know. But the good news is, They were right about Jesus. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And the wonder is that Jesus is willing to be identified with me so that I could be identified with him. He suffered violence so I could have peace. He was punished and I'm healed. So if that's true, if he would publicly rise to defend you and I, to take on the wrath of God in the cross and defeat death in the resurrection... Why wouldn't I willingly offer myself to him? What could he ask me to do that I wouldn't willingly say, here I am, Lord?
So if you're in doubt this morning, pray for ears to hear. Or if you're unaffected or apathetic, pray for ears to hear. Let's pray for those ears. Let's pray for the eyes of faith uh, together. Uh, Father, we stand amazed at the work of Christ on our behalf. We, we thank you that you're very honest with us about what it costs to follow you, Lord Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that you would make these truths more and more real to our hearts and to our lives, that the, the reality of, of the cost of discipleship uh, would, be, would, be, would be very real, that we would see ourselves with the eyes of faith, that we would hear the message that we are the gluttons and the drunkards and the sinners. And the good news is that Jesus is a friend to those who are those things, and that you would choose that truth. To overwhelm and overcome our hearts, our hard hearts, our unbelieving hearts, our apathetic hearts. And that as they're overcome, you might drive us to faith, drive us to the cross, drive us to see the one who was pierced, who was punished, who was stricken. That we might be healed, that we might be made whole, that we might be called sons and daughters of God. And we pray that you do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I would just tell you, please don't remember uh, that I served communion to my stuffed animals. Uh, what I want you to remember, what I want you to take away is where you are, where you find yourself this morning, and that Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's a savior of gluttons. He's a savior of drunkards, of tax collectors. Uh, remember him. Think about him. Uh, and as you go, uh, this this good word, this blessing over your life is the equipment that you take with you to accomplish the mission. Uh, as, you, as you've heard this, take, take the blessing with you as you go. Uh, and please come today at five and join us. Uh, it's hard work. We need lots of people there to support uh, the work of praying for our city uh, as, we, as we meet downtown. So, so come out for that. I'd invite you. Uh, the benediction. You are free to open your hands, you're free to bow your head, however you want to receive it. But please do receive it and know that uh, it's, it's, it's one of the most important things we do in the worship service. So as you go, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.